0: Sin Carriers, a West Side fairy tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Previously on Sin Carriers, young Suleyme remembered her life after emigrating to America. But what started out as hope and optimism quickly faded as her refugee friends and family were mired in the Montana wilderness during a bad winter. In these visions, she met an odd and twisted old woman who offered her a curious playing card bearing a picture of a moon. In Lord Belial's mansion, Moira found herself growing giddy on her host's hospitality. Meanwhile, her father was thrown out before the party even began, though not necessarily because of Belial's feelings. Tolliver soon found Belial had left him a parting gift a paralyzed young woman, to which Tolliver felt an irresistible draw. In town, Miskell, Dawn and the other drivers were beset by psychotic, bloodthirsty villagers who seemed hell-bent on killing them. Ricky Tulane was killed by a stray gunshot, and Miskel was barely saved from being cut in half by a meat cleaver when Greg Cutting flung an empty liquor bottle into the would-be killer's face. John and Miskel were separated from the others and escaped through an upstairs window, barely surviving an assault by the Must's reanimated Pinkertons. Thanks to crack shooting by Mildover and Elam, they managed to break free and head for the relative safety of the train. While providing overwatch, Mildover couldn't shake thoughts of his old commander, Brigadier General Benson Grimley, who passed through this town before. While he was distracted, Elam saw something massive moving rooftop to rooftop, so he wasn't confident exactly what the inhuman thing might be. On the train, Ducky did his best to repel the must's assault. Though he accomplished little in the face of such overwhelming and supernatural power, he managed to buy enough time for Gato to make quick work of the skull-faced man. He soon met his match in the rider, however, who fought Gato to a lopsided draw before running off, called by some unknown force. In her dreams, young Sulemae remembered the slaughter of her people by a golden-haired man accompanied by a young corporal named Cain. Suleiman was dealt a mortal wound and left for dead, but was found by the twisted crone who offered her a deal in order to live, to hold on to a card with a screaming her face and to take her vengeance, to let it drive her, a deal to which Suleiman. On this episode of Sin Carriers, Vasily and Vicky try to make sense of Belial's home. His plans and to figure out what he's done with Sue and Moira. Young Suleiman drags herself from an early grave, hand over bloody hand. Cold Wickless sticks to the shadows in town, trying to find his way to safety, and Belial's ball comes to an explosive finish. What will become of young Suleiman? Sent forth on a quest for vengeance. What other nightmares might Wigglers discover in this foreign town? Will any of our travelers manage to escape Belial's grasp, or will somebody's journey end here and now? You may find the answers to these questions and more on this, the 11th episode and penultimate entry in the Grand Ball Arc of Sin Carriers,
0: Dance. Vasily followed Moira at a distance, not quite knowing what to do about the entire situation. The young woman had ingratiated herself into a host of off-putting, if affable, nightmares. Few of them showed more than the sort of distant, polite interest he recognized from his few interactions with Russian nobility. Indirect pleasantries and light flattery peppered Moira as she twirled amongst them soft attempts to make an impression without seeming overbearing. These things are politicians, Vasily realized with a shudder. Around him, the odd indigo structure pulsed with rhythmic red light. He looked over the profane feast on the table and tried to find something to eat that wasn't human. Overwhelmed by the spread, I presume, a woman asked, stepping up beside him. Vasily took a deep breath and steadied himself. She was beautiful, almost terrifyingly so, and considerably taller than him, fully two meters at least. None of this so knocked him off balance as much as her scarlet eyes. They seemed to thud in time with the overhead light show. Something like that, Vasily said, stiffening his spine and extending a hand to the woman. Vasily, Tovarish. She raised an eyebrow and favored him with a lady's overhand shake. Fingernails like a well-manicured grizzly bear caught lightly in the flesh of his palm. She smiled when he gave her hand two smart pumps and broke contact with a light bow. Cornelia, she said. He waited for a surname that never came. That's it. And I'd suggest the bowls of fruit over there. This is a night where all the flesh is intermingled. She stepped closer, her eyes lowering to the level of Vasily's waist and taking a step around him to pluck something skewered off the table. He took a sharp breath when he felt her calf graze the back of his thigh. Unless you enjoy the taste of flesh. She cleaned off the thin bamboo steak with a quick swipe of her teeth. "'I have partaken in the past,' Vasily said quietly. "'The woman smiled and retracted her leg, though she remained close. "'Her body was lithe and draped in dark, well-tailored pelts and leathers "'accented by the frost-white fur of some long-haired animal around her shoulders. "'The sides of this piece split up to her hips and ended in squared hems at her shins.' It was the most evocative thing Vasily had ever seen a woman wear, and extremely feminine, though also threatening. It had a martial quality to it, he realized, like a military uniform. A shame, she said. Vasily flinched, realizing he'd been staring. Are you waiting for an audience with the Nidus as well? I know you came in with her, but I don't think she'll be making time for you this evening. Vasily cocked an eyebrow and looked to Moira. She seemed so unlike herself, so giddy. Despite the unnerving aspects of this place, she had come willingly and seemed comfortable and safe. There was no reason for him to inject himself into her business. The red spider on the covering he'd made for her shone when she turned to him, eyes flashing from a distance and then gone. Cornelia had called Moira a nidus, an unfamiliar word. "'Sir?' A hand slapped down on Vasily's shoulder and he jumped, turning so fast he was surprised he hadn't drawn his pistol. It was the typewriter boy from the train. "'What the hell, man?' Vasily almost shouted, adjusting his clothing. He heard Cornelia chuckle and wander away from them. Her departure was a relief, but he had wanted to ask her more questions." He took a frustrated breath. What's your name again? I'm sorry about that, the boy said. It's Victor Elenas Blackwell Corporation Sales. His hand dipped to a pocket and he held out a business card. You can call me Vicky. Vasily took the card and flicked it away onto the dance floor. Vicky blinked, frowned, and then shrugged and looked around the room, seemingly unbothered by the spectacle around them. "'My name is Vasily Tovarish,' Vasily said. "'Do not hand me things. Why are you so calm?' "'I sold two typewriters today,' Vicky replied. Without looking, he snatched a sandwich off the table beside them. One of many sitting beneath a tray marked only thigh and took a bite. Vasily shouted and slapped the sandwich away, gaining the attention of a slug covered in human faces.' and would look to be a hat with a single, thin leg holding it up like a lampshade. (laughs) Vasily felt himself breaking out into a sweat, gave both of these things a tight, (laughs) apologetic (sighs) smile, and bowed. They readjusted their attentions elsewhere. The hell'd you do that for? Vicky asked, looking over his suit. Vasily had sent mustard flying along with the cold cuts, flecks of which Vicky was trying to blot off his sleeve. Vasily stared at Vicky with a madman's expression and pointed at the table, where Vicky's eyes traced a path from the sandwich plate to the pain-frozen expression of the burned and butchered woman. A man with a face like sackcloth pushed past them, shook open a jaw filled with broken glass teeth, and started shoveling in cuts of the woman's thigh. Vicky hiccuped, blanched, and turned back to Vasily, nodding slowly. Oh... Oh, Vasily said, rapidly nodding at Vicky. His face was on fire, sweat soaking his collar. Oh, oh, you say? He stepped in closer. Who takes food off a table without looking at it? What is wrong with you Americans? You're going to kill me! Vicky started rubbing his palms on his pants and nearly started into the sales pitch he used to comfort himself but froze instead. Is that soup? Vicky asked, pointing at the table's marble centerpiece. Vasily nodded silently, taking in more of the buffet than he wanted to. Along with the butchered woman beside him, there were four other human bodies on the massive, sweeping table. All of them were arranged with their heads toward the statue. Black feathers, American ravens, were arranged in thick, Nest-like piles around a statue's otherwise unadorned plinth. The resemblance is uncanny, Vasily said. I think... I think I meant is, is that... So? Vicky corrected. This was the first time he'd seen a genuine concern in the boy's face, and Vasily felt a certain kinship pass between them. A crowd of people who seemed to all really just be one singular mass passed them and dragged a male body off the table. Its chest burst open upon striking the tile, and Vasily felt his knees go weak as bundles of roasted carrots and onions spilled across the floor. The crowd thing dragged the body amongst itself, and Vasily watched the crowd's hands pulling chunks of bone and gristle out of their pockets and dropping them on the ground. The slug of many faces followed close behind, slurping up these indelicacies and leaving a thin trail of slime. I'm not sure, Vasily said. He looked closely at the statue and saw many signs of age and wear. Pieces of the fragile sword bits on the woman's back had even been broken away and reattached. I want to say I don't think so, but the more time I spend in America, the less I am able to make sense of anything same Vicky said giving a last worried look to the statue and then pointing to the arched top of the rising double staircase which stood over the hall is that Tolliver's daughter Vasily followed Vicky's finger and saw Moira standing swaying really atop the ovoid dais where the stairs met Belial descended the broad fanning staircase behind her and called to the creatures assembled below resting his hand on Moira's shoulder her eyes fluttered shut. I would love to say the sight of so many brethren mingling amongst each other beneath my roof brings me any feeling short of disgust. But I suppose I'll leave the lying to the professionals amongst us, Blyle said. His long fingers snaked around Moira's neck, gently pushing her chin upward to expose her throat. Vasily felt himself shaking. Vicky sensed as much and grabbed the Russian's wrist, startling himself when he felt the small shape of a gun and all that metal beneath the cloth. I wouldn't... Vicky whispered, pulling his hand back when Vasily glared at him. I don't know what this is all about, but I... uh, We're not in a position to complain about things. Vasily narrowed his eyes, clearly still considering the gun in his sleeve. Look, I won't stop you, but you better give me a second to get away. Look who you're surrounded by. Vicky seemed uncomfortable maintaining eye contact and looked away. The Nidus has arrived in the company of the Golden Fist, and so we now stand together on a night promised us long ago, Belial said. A night some of us, many of us, feared may never come, he stroked Moira's cheek and looked at her, eyes soft. Fear. Fear is beneath us. It is for them, the little people. And those like Amon Blackwell, who will not, of course, be joining us here tonight, amongst many more still who have ignored our invitations. Because you are a fool, Blythe. The slug of many faces said. It spoke in chorus, some mouths moving and others still gnashing their teeth and running a gamut of expressions. You must put your fingers
1: on every shiny thing you see. You will soon be
0: thrice diminished, and your auspices will crumble long before the new fire burns. The
1: flock!
0: We'll sore Belial gave the thing a disgusted look but did not address it Aqueous tendrils pushed free of the mass and it swelled to two meters in height it twisted into the shape of a muscular ancient man who wore the slug body like a cloak Four golden arms reached from the ruddy brown of his torso matching the eyes he now fixed on Belial. Each of his stubby fingers ended in a jagged, curving barb. "'Then why are you here, Kyoyu?' Belial asked. "'To watch, as always,' the thing replied, smiling the way a parent might at a child. Belial wrinkled his nose in disgust and clenched his fist. Distortions around the slug creature solidified into bright, flat sheets of purple crystal and clapped together, smashing it into a fan of gore that shot through the gathering. Some landed on the crowd thing and one of its people shapes broke loose and began to scream. The others shunned it from their group and stepped back as the slug's dislocated viscera consumed it. Vasily saw a face form in the slurry that remained which smiled as it regathered itself back into a whole being. "'Lord, I'm taking a holiday after this,' Vicky said to himself. Vasily watched the boy rub his palms dry on his pants. Belial seemed irritated by his own speech at this point. Clearly, something the thing had said had dug deep into the man. <sighs> "'Now for a dance, as in old times ahead head of the planting,' Belial said, moving through the words with half his former pomposity. "'I have my partner here, and you shall choose amongst yourselves from those provided. Now!' Belial turned to Moira and began to tear her dress away at the throat. He removed only the outermost parts, but such an abuse of the young woman's honor was more than Vasily intended to bear. He dropped his gun into his hand and began walking toward the stairs. "'Mr. Vasily!' Vicky shouted Mr. Tovarish Vasily corrected him Belial was holding Moira like some Lothario now letting her dangle from his arms as a fit overtook her Vasily saw the young woman's head tilt toward him saw the flash of his scarlet spider and then something else her eye suddenly clear and confused and terrified Mr. Tovarish Vicky shouted again And this time he grabbed the man around his arm and dragged him back hard enough they both fell to the ground. People were screaming, Vasily realized. Just now, hearing the voices, even though his mind told him perhaps it had been happening for some time. Blood splashed across the crystalline floor in front of him, flecks pattering across the toe of his shoe. In that same second, the still living body of a man who'd been bisected shoulder to hip fell where he'd been walking. The man wore only simple, brown clothes. His eyes met Vasily's for what felt like an eternity, and Vasily watched him die. What the devil? He muttered breathlessly in Russian, and something burst past him to latch its jaws around the dying man's head. Vicky pulled Vasily to his feet, and he saw the source of the commotion. The hall was now filled with dozens of young men and women, children as well who all seemed to have just woken up from a long nap. The things around them were feasting on the hapless humans, tearing into them with teeth and talons and less understandable implements. The crowd thing seemed to have grown, and Vasily dragged Vicky out of the way as it passed them to swallow up a half-naked woman laying catatonic on the floor. We need to, to, to get the hell out of here, Vicky said. Vasily gritted his teeth and looked up at the dais. Belial seemed to be whispering something to Moira as he undressed her. Vasily watched a handful of men attempt to escape up Belial's stairs. Without even looking at them, his odd home rippled and burst their bodies. A rainbow of blood rose over the ovoid dais and collapsed with a splash around Belial and Moira. You can't go up there, Mr. Tavarish! Vicky shouted. Vasily cursed and turned to take in the carnage. "'hoping to find some inspiration in the chaos. "'He would not leave Moira, "'but approaching by the stairs was impossible. "'No, I don't think he can,' "'a woman's voice said behind them. Vasily turned to find the tall woman from earlier, "'Cornelia, towering over them. "'She smiled, and when she did, Vasily could see the teeth along the right side of her mouth "'were black with rot.' That's not your biggest concern. Care to dance. Uh, Hey there, folks. If you're like me, then you love a scary story. But why settle for bargain bin, big box store, blandness when you can get piping hot homemade horror delivered directly to your home? Support the West Side Fairy Tales today on Patreon, and you can get episodes like this one ad-free, as well as access to merch, eBooks, and other amazing deals. But most importantly, you'll help bring weird, original content like Sin Carriers to life. If you want more bizarre, creepy, and horrifying indie fiction, then go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today! Dragged herself, wet and smoking, from her own shallow grave. Nothing remained of the camp or people. Days of snowfall blanketed the massacre, as though the earth itself desired to forget. Something inside her shuddered awake and raised its head, and she turned to the east and walked. Wolves watched from the cover of the nearest trees, curious and silent, tasting the air with their snouts smells they found urged caution they had eaten well for many nights now and the chill would keep this meat for many more inspecting the thing that had crawled out of the ground wasn't worth the risk the youngest amongst them a blue-eyed pup with odd hair raised his small mouth to the wind and howled as the muddy thing loped into the night Crept through town, trying to make some sense of this night before it killed him. What he'd seen was more than probably most men could take, and on his own account, he too was damn near close to just laying down and giving it the old que sera sera. His drive proved strong, however, and he kept pushing despite himself, finally finding an open door into an empty house. Smash and grabs were a good way to restart. And he'd had to reset his life and identity many, many times over the years. Find new skin and crawl into it. Find some food and fill yourself. Find something hard or sharp or powerful enough to give you an edge when it came to it. This absolute fucking madhouse of a town was more than he'd ever dealt with. But that didn't mean the same old rules didn't apply. He shut the door behind him and felt around in the dark taking care to make as little noise as possible and walking with his arms out until he found a lantern. It lit easy enough, being the common sort with a flint on the base, though he was dismayed to find it attached to the wall by its fuel bulb. Fortunately, the light it provided showed him another lantern at the top of the stairs. Colt gave the shadows a long, careful look and then pulled his firearm. He'd managed to hold on to the pistol after being tackled outside the inn, it now took the time to listen to the house around him and slide his last four bullets into the chambers. The empties he slid individually into the palm of his hand before depositing each into a separate pocket. Screams, gunshots, and other, more unspeakable, noises cut the night outside. But inside the air was still and dry and thick with dust. Scanned light showed him the shapes and surfaces typical of a bank around him. At least by his reckoning. It might also be an office of sorts, but it had that financial air about it. A stiff, stale paper smell. He ascended. Anybody not dead asleep in the house would have heard the loud, goddamn, fucking, squeaking-ass bullshit stairs the second he set foot on them, but he doubted he'd catch anybody unawares in this place. With the way things were outside, he figured few folks, if any... And this town didn't have somewhere to be tonight. He went up two floors, clicking lanterns on all the way. They provided soft, wet-feeling light that seemed more an afterthought than a planned method of illumination. But they were better than nothing. Colt looked out the nearest window, using the height to give himself a better understanding of where he was. The town wasn't particularly large or complex but the mad sprint from the inn had disoriented him. With this view, he could see he'd been heading in roughly the right direction. Maybe two or three hundred yards lay between him and the steady glow of lights at the platform. An easy jog, if there ever was one, but if he was caught up by more of these insane villagers, it wasn't likely he'd make that trip unharmed. If at all. hesitated to even consider trying to outrun the things that had accidentally saved him something said from the room closest to him Colt licked his top row of teeth and turned his head to the door there he heard nothing more for a long second then a sort of wet clumping noise like a child falling on a wet carpet he thought without meaning to it wasn't an unpleasant thought him at least. Memories surfaced of a few fun nights in Calabasas that belonged to him and, given the state he'd left his partner in after that long weekend, only him. Such things were motivators in hard times, pots of gold marking the far ends of black rainbows. He heard sliding noises and tipped his hat at the door, turning to slink away. When Colt looked down the long flight of stairs... Something wet was looking back at him. Its eyes were black, like bearings dipped in oil. The skin around them glowed white in the lanterns, and that's all he could see through the gaps in the stairwell banisters. Without so much as a noise, the lantern closest to the thing died. Cold watched for another long, suffocating minute until a slick, white arm reached out of the darkness and doused the next light. Huh. Colt said to himself, taking a breath. Whatever lay behind the door beside him made a wet, huffing sound as though to answer him. All right, then. He opened the next door slowly, gun up and hammered back. Another light went out beneath him and he stepped inside, shutting the door slow and quiet. It was an office, like the sort they had in police stations in nicer cities. No electricity, of course, but the desk had a set of green glass kerosene lanterns which he lit with matches found on the desk. These could be removed from their fine brass holders and carried, which he immediately took advantage of, casting the light around the room. With better illumination, he could see the wall-dominating bookcases and leather-bound volumes that suggested a lawyer's office. A few expensive-looking implements sat on the desk which he pocketed before rifling through the drawers. He found a worthless steel two-shotter with no ammunition, a fine-looking letter opener, and a great deal of correspondence with somebody named Amon. He fanned every letter for anything valuable before pocketing them, but found nothing until he got to the bottom of the drawer. Letters always had value to somebody, especially lawyerly types. Not them, he muttered uncovering several hundred-dollar bills and a few weighty gold coins. Something was moving up the stairs behind him, and he figured whatever it was, they'd either come to terms or not. In his experience, anything smart enough to operate a lantern could be put to sleep with a few ounces of lead. If that wasn't the case, there was always the window. Something said in the corner of the room. The noise made Colt jump nearly out of his skin, but he kept a hand on the lantern and the gun, raising both in that direction. What he found was just the easy chair he'd seen earlier, but now he realized there was some kind of shape resting in it. Taken by curiosity, he approached, almost completely forgetting the sluggish noise of the thing in the hallway. The thing said. "'Good God,' Colt whispered, thinking suddenly of the Garvey thing slipping up into the inn ceiling. "'What sat before him was starkly white, mostly made of human pieces and somehow alive despite all logic. "'Its limbs had thinned to the bone, leaving only curled baby's fingers at the end of its long, stickish arms. "'Its torso had burst like an overcooked sausage.' ripping the flesh of its face and chest from their moorings and leaving Colt a perfect view of its working lungs and heart. Its eyeballs were black and swollen, protruding like flies' eyes. Scrims of translucent, inhuman tissue covered it in a thin cocoon, curling its worthless limbs against its chest. Colt stepped back and felt something crunch under his boot. Which startled him bad enough he nearly jumped out of his skin. Casting his lantern to the floor, he saw crushed shards of bone piled over top some kind of fabric. Red ribbon, he realized, squatting down over top it. Some was still threaded through the eye socket of a skull. Something said from the door. Colt found the seated creature's adult equal shoving its body into the room. He set the lantern down beside the twitching, muttering thing in the chair and crept into the dark as quietly as he could, putting both hands on the grip of his pistol. The adult thing looked all around the room, its head rotating like a chicken's, but it didn't seem to notice Colt. Its body was a great grub-like sausage that moved in flexing contractions like a slug. The human skull remained, but the jaw had disintegrated, replaced with a tall, thin mouth that dipped down into the chest cavity and never quite closed. From this, it spoke. Senseless and phlegmy vocalizations Colt almost recognized as words. Its eyes were hungry, insectile, and searching. He watched it approach its junior and then turned off the light, leaving that side of the room to moonlight and shadow. The chair-bound creature made a noise and the larger one fell over it, doing something Colt couldn't see and didn't want to. There was a great deal of high-pitched screaming and shaking from the creature. Colt forced himself to walk instead of running, cursing the creaking of the lantern's wire handle in his shaking hand. Doors to other rooms had opened during his short sojourn in the office, now he could hear a chorus of the gibberish words filling the stairwell as he descended. Wet, black eyes glimmered behind every door, and at one point a thin, white hand reached out and tugged on his shirt sleeve. Colt kept the lantern high and held his breath until he made the front door of the building. Then he smashed the lantern on the transom, turned. And ran for the train. <laughs> hungry. She was hungry. Cold. She was cold. The girl came in to herself again as she reached the camp, still not quite understanding where the dream of her life began and ended. Surely her parents were still alive and waiting to wake her and take her to pray in the mosque beside the Eastern Market. Ali would begin at the madrasa soon, despite their family's low standing. Sufism left a stain on their reputation, but the local imams professed that a basic education was the right of every Muslim boy. And paid for the upkeep of the schools out of their own pockets. Her limbs moved with little input from her. She felt flighty, bird-like, as they flitted her from place to place. Around her rose the sounds of men at the end of a long night of sin. Perhaps, really, still in the grips of sin to the bottoms of their hearts, living beneath the red moon of an eternal night that eclipsed their every waking moment. If she had her choice, she would like to have some goat cheese and bread in the afternoon with her mother after they hung the laundry. She would smell the fresh clothing and feel the sun on her as her father's robes beat out a steady rhythm in the wind. Then she was there, her mother's hand in hers and the Levantine sky high and blue above them. Days were warm and soft and calm. Her father took care of everything much as her brother would someday and then her husband when she was married there would always be chores and hassles but there would also be soft warm days with the sound of wind and laundry she killed the boy first he was maybe just old enough to be married himself he had a fine strong jaw and cool eyes They flitted around as she cut into his throat with the bayonet she'd unscrewed from the top of a pyramid of rifles. He screamed loud enough to wake the dead, but none amongst the living turned their ear. All of them were drunk or sleeping off drink or so dulled by the constant revelry they couldn't hear anything but their own ringing ears. So this boy died alone and forgotten, beneath a tiny naked and mud-slicked thing in a territory he'd never once thought to visit growing up in Tennessee. His failing brain did not spare him the pain of this little bird as she pecked out his eyes and cut free his tongue, leaving only the black sockets in his skull. He spent his last, lonely moments choking on his own coppery blood, bathed in a new and hellish dark. Ali was a foolish boy, if there ever was one. Somehow he was free in every way Suleyme knew she was not. He could make any mistake and there was a lesson in it, from which he was expected to grow. Suleyme could merely find boundaries which compelled her to shrink and demure. Paths she could not walk down, much less stray from. It wasn't Ali's fault the world was like this, but it was like this, so she resented him for it. He died miserably in the end, though. As did her father. And her mother. And her. She found the golden man who'd run her through alone in his tent with a flagon of hard liquor spilled on the floor beside his cot. It wasn't hard to find him, his tent was the largest. In better times, she supposed, it might have also been the best guarded. He slept, and she wandered the life he'd built for himself out here in the middle of nowhere. What little she understood of English showed him to be a man held in high regard by other men of high regard. Return soon was what she noticed most often amongst his papers, though it never said to where. On the canvas wall behind his mirror hung dozens of black-haired scalps. Some were shiny and straight, and others short and tightly curled. A few still had ponytails or braids. Some of the hair was styled into locks thick as the ship ropes in the holds that had brought her clan to this place. She ran her hand along them as she walked, feeling the strands mixed together into a meaningless sensory overload beneath her fingertips. Never once did she sense Um Hakim or her mother or father amongst them. "'nor her brother or any of the others. "'Perhaps they were not there. "'Even if they were, this man and his soldiers "'had rendered them beyond any sense of identity, "'gathered as the worthless wool of unwanted sheep, "'sheared and left to dry. "'Suleme took the shaving razor the man had left "'on his foolish, gilded vanity and flipped it open in her hand.' She listened to him mumble in his sleep as she crept atop him to sit comfortably on his chest. Then she took the razor and cut herself in a single, shallow slash over her lips, sucking the blood from this fresh wound into her mouth. She spit onto her palm, made a fist, and left her small, red handprint on his face. She slit his throat. Then she began to scalp him. She'd pulled a chunk of his hair the size of her foot free of his skull when a man ran screaming into the room to report one of the dead bodies she'd left on the way to the tent. His words froze in his throat when he saw her, bathed in mud and blood, expression flat as she sawed the curled golden fleece off his struggling commander. She cut free most of what she'd gathered and rolled beneath the man's cob as the interloper drew a pistol to shoot at her. She'd heard this man's name during the slaughter, but could remember only his face. Sulame rolled from the tent and sprinted through the woods, cawing like a banshee and then screaming up into the frosted boughs. Shadows of a million birds seemed to call back down to her, though surely there couldn't be that many in these woods. She ran until she could no longer hear the voices of men. Then she ran until she could not feel her feet. Then she crawled. A hunting party of dark-haired men found her soaking in the shallows of a cold river. Blood and dirt befouled the water around her, and the men took precautions against many unseen things before approaching the child. When she pushed herself to her feet, it reeled toward them. One drew a pistol and held it against his leg. Then she handed him the stinking blonde fleece and they took it, marveled a moment as they realized what it was, and then tossed the worthless thing in the reeds to rot. She held the knife, her knife, in a tight fist all the way back to their camp. Even when she slept swaddled in the men's blankets, in the morning, they provided her care, shoes, and simple clothing they made from the pelts they'd collected on this hunt. All the words that passed between them were unspoken. One man lifted some cooked food and pointed to the west. She stroked her hair with the bloodied knife and pointed to the north. By morning, she was gone, and so were they. Are you a fan of the West Side Fairy Tales podcast and my 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 story, Sin Carriers? Then take a second right now, pause this episode, and take a second to like it, comment on it, or share it on your favorite social media sites. This year, we're trying to grow the West Side Fairy Tales like never before, and we need your help to do it. So if you have just a second, use Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the hell, and share the West Side Fairy Tales with the world. And if you want, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and what have you. Just search Westside Fairy Tales or use the link in the episode show notes. Alright, that's it. I get you. Vasily slid his pistol from his sleeve with an oily click, not getting his arm even half past his waist before Cornelia lunged at him. She had an easy smile on her face, clearly not impressed by any threat Vassili might muster. Then he felt himself being shoved sideways, his arm arrested midway to Cornelia's face. She also froze, confused by the interruption." A small, chubby hand found its way past the black claws she'd been aiming at Vasily's chest. (laughs) Vicky started to say. He was smiling in a crooked way, nodding ecstatically, and sweating enough he'd already soaked his collar. Pleased to make your acquaintance, I'm Victor Melanace and I work in sales. I see you're here alone, miss, but could I interest you in a few minutes of conversation? I (gasps) He took a deep breath. Cornelia took Vicky's hand and looked down at it like he'd stuck it in a metal press. I'm an employee of the Blackwell Corporation, and I I think you're a talker, ma'am, and maybe even something of a saleswoman yourself. Am I right about that? After a fashion, Cornelia answered in a flat voice, squeezing Vicky's hand with a grip just shy of causing lasting damage. When he didn't so much as flinch... She released the pressure and gave him a humoring smile. Blackwell. As in, Amon Blackwell. Yes, ma'am. Vicky replied. She relaxed her posture and Vicky took a breath. Not many people know about Mr. Blackwell, especially by name. Can I ask what line of business you're in? Vicky, move! Vasily whispered. Cornelia gave him a severe look and then turned her attentions back to Vicky, retracting her hand. Nobody's ever asked me like that before, so I've never really thought about it, Cornelia said, crossing her arms. They were as thick as Vasily's legs. I suppose I work for myself. She leaned over top Vicky and grinned at him. The size difference between them was enough she looked like a mother getting ready to kiss her son's forehead before sending him off to bed. I like to collect things things and people i make do stuff for me she lay a long fingered hand along his shoulder running her thumbnail over his throat he swallowed "Ah, simple enough he said is that what brings you here tonight yes she replied vicky Vasily whispered around them the slaughter continued Humans clawed at the walls trying to escape or lay dying or left bloody streaks dragging their ruined bodies across the floor. He saw a squat, box-shaped wolf-thing drag somebody from under the table by their ankles only to find the ankles connected to legs and nothing else. The upper body had been shorn away at the hips. Vasily thumbed the hammer back on his pistol. I'm sorry, Mr. Tavares, but I'm having a lovely conversation with Miss... Vicky raised his hand up to the nails, threatening his throat, and Cornelia let her hand slip down into his. It was not so much another handshake as a cursory inspection of the flesh on the back of his hand. She checked the other as well while they were talking, holding his hands like they were about to do a box step. Eventually, she answered. Cornelia, she said, just that, only that, well... "'Miss Cornelia,' Vicky said. "'I'm sure you've noticed me and my friend here "'have gotten ourselves into something of a bind.' "'Even as he said this, "'a screaming man rolled past them on the floor, "'trying to pry off the talons "'of a naked, chicken-headed woman "'pecking through his skull. "'She pressed into something important "'and the man stood ramrod straight. "'Then he sat quietly with his hands slack in his lap "'as she got comfortable and started eating his brain.' I'm not sure we'll make it out of here without some assistance. And? And, uh, given your size and the imposing nature of your presence, I I would like to hire you to protect us, Vicky said, smiling. Cornelia's eyes went wide with shock. Then she burst out laughing. Vasily saw his chance and pushed Vicky to the side, leveling his pistol at Cornelia's face and firing. Somehow... She managed to get her hand up just before the hammer fell, and he shot twice into the palm of her hand. Both she and Vasily looked at the back of her hand as she turned it over to see that neither of the rounds had penetrated. She chuckled and sucked the two bullets out of her palm, spitting them onto the ground at Vasily's feet. He sighed and squatted down, flicking one of the smashed wads of lead. This seemed to tickle Cornelia all the more, and she kept laughing. Eventually, she lay her unbloodied hand on Vicky's shoulder and pulled him in close, bending over to whisper in his ear. Vasily couldn't hear what, exactly, she was saying, but Vicky's neck turned red as she talked. When she let him go, he was stuttering again and desperately wiping his palms off on his trousers. "'I suppose that's fine.' he said unexpected but fine pleasure doing uh, uh pleasure doing um uh, pleasure doing uh, uh pleasure doing she ran her thumb along his cheek and then took his hand gently in hers giving it a firm shake and then winking at Vasily. He had no idea what was going on. Deal. She whispered. She led them to a wall Vasily could barely separate from the illusion of infinite space around them and leaned against it. The dance is almost over. In any case, they watched the last living people be captured, killed, or eaten from behind Cornelia. Vasily, for his part he was happy he'd not seen what had become of the children but he had no idea what could be done up on the dais Belial was still dancing with Moira who dangled from his arms like a doll her eyes were listless Vasily cursed and punched his palm he was useless again useless to another woman who relied on him an odd popping noise stalled the motion in the hall bringing every eye to the center of the room where the odd statue of Sue still stood white and unmolested amongst the slaughter even Belial stopped dancing turning to watch as the statue split splintered and fell to dust over the table nothing remained of it inhuman voices rose in celebration so we begin the consummation Belial called Red light beat harder overhead, the color and pulse almost overpowering. Vasily found himself squinting. "'What does that mean?' he asked. Cornelia gave him an appraising glance and shrugged. She'd taken a seat cross-legged and pulled Vicky into her lap so she could run her fingers through his hair. The hapless salesman blushed and allowed this behavior to continue, his hands on his knees and his thumbs kneading his trouser seams. Whatever Belial thinks it means, Cornelia muttered. He's an idiot with an audience of a dozen other idiots. Everybody else came for the free food and to watch it all blow up in his face. At free food, she rubbed Vicky's head extra hard. This is madness, Vasily said. Of course it is, Cornelia replied. On the dais... Belial lay Moira on a crystal platform he'd summoned from the ground. Scalpel-thin shards formed in the air and sliced her clothing away, all save the barest undergarments and the covering Vasily had made. I'm going to kill him. No, you're not, Cornelia said, dragging him down by his neck and holding him against her body like a misbehaving puppy. Her flesh was as soft as any woman's, But the muscles beneath were lumps of living iron. I want my pound of flesh from little Vicky Melanese here. And I can't have it if you get hurt before we get you out of Belial's house. So sit down. And behave yourself like a good boy. Understand? Silly opened his mouth to protest, but found he was suddenly quite deaf. His eyes watered for a moment as things settled back into place around him. His face was pressed into something soft and hot, and Vicky was staring at him from just a few inches away, also clearly dazed. The ground flew by underneath them, partially obscured by the flick of heavily muscled thighs. Then he was sliding and rolling and clutching his own skull in agony. When he finally managed to gather himself, he realized he was outside again, kneeling amidst a titanic rain of crystal. Shards the size of barn doors slid into the dirt in front of and behind him, barely making any noise as they sunk or shattered or outright vanished into the earth. I knew it... It was the first thing he heard, though the words were dull and muted. It was Cornelia, kneeling with an unconscious Vicky in her arms. He watched a fat laceration stitch itself closed beneath her right eye. The fucking idiot. She was looking back in the direction he was sure they'd come from, where Belial still stood atop the dais, though now it was a dull thing of old brick and broken glass. Cracked, blackened stone arched over the last, glowing remnants of his home. Belial glared up at something brilliant and red falling at him like a drop of bloody moonstone and raised his hand to strike at it with the last of his power, but he was too late. Cornelia reared her head back and cackled like a mad witch into the night sky. moira couldn't breathe something had happened to her though she couldn't quite tell what she remembered the last moments on the train and some of the ride over silly fumbling over how to give her the wonderful little trinket he'd made her father hadn't seemed well but she hadn't asked after him she felt giddy and distant divorced somehow from her own self nightmares sprung up around her Asking after her wants and needs, wondering if she was happy the way she was living. No, of course she wasn't. She secretly hated her life. Not just because she wasn't well treated by people she knew were her inferiors in both decency and intellect, but because the very nature of her birth precluded people from taking her seriously. Beneath her lay almost every living thing on the planet. There was nothing she couldn't eat if she just so much as asked for it. Nobody would dare lay a finger on her. She was too precious for harm or hard work. Between her legs lay the lock to a generational fortune, and all one need do was ask her father, her uncle, to use the key in just the right way. To everyone she met who was poor and dirty and low, she was some sort of princess. Same to her equals and betters, actually. Though what princess meant differed between the classes. Common people thought her too high, too alien to find commonality in, and so she was to them like clouds and raindrops. Too high to touch, only existing as some inconstant boon or bad omen that swept in and out of their lives without a care. To her father, she was a misunderstood asset. And to her other male relatives and... of the men in her circles a well-understood asset a rare and tradable commodity what worthy difference separated these inhuman beasts and well-bred suitors and sales professionals and money men and moneyed men who swept up like seaweed in her grandfather's wake at every estate party she twirled amongst them distant to herself and the world tasting of the offered flesh and drowning in delight Something stirred within and around her, at the base of her stomach and just behind her neck. The glittering red eyes of a hungry passerine watched beyond the bars of her gilded cage, just beyond the shining crystal. Stop, she finally said, feeling the heady maelstrom of guilt and need pass over and through her to somewhere else. It was like sliding on a wet hunk of seashell on a beach and then falling into the water. Her perspective had changed. She was awake. Stop! Belial gave her a curious look and continued his slow rotations. The scent of blood choked the air around her. Spilled intestines and shit soaked her every breath, sank into what remained of her clothing. Pulsing red light stilled overhead and darkened, thickened in intensity, Belial saw this reflected in Moira's cheeks but continued on. Her blue garments darkened to a bloody purple and then indigo under this new light. Stop, she said, twisting her hands in his soft linen robes. Belial's pale skin darkened to a plum color that suited him much better, she thought. He pulled her fists off his clothing and roughly pushed them over her head. When she fought him, He squeezed and lifted, straining the bones in her wrists and forcing her to cry out in pain. Don't interfere, he said, stretching her over a hard bed of crystal and stepping back to shed his clothing. His entire body had thickened, heavy muscles layered his formerly slender frame, and his skin seemed rubbery. Red light obliterated every other color, thickened every shadow to ink. Deep silence settled over him and the chaotic room stilled. Moira saw Belial's home was not especially large or complex. It was a great glass mirage. The ceiling hung only a few yards above them. She could see vertices and shifting crystal matrices folding in on each other to reflect and refract and expand this small and simple domain through illusion. Most of it lay beneath and behind her, spread out so as to accommodate his guests. The red pushed low, revealing even his deepest, most hidden chambers. Moira saw wings, as though of a great, dark bird descending on its prey. And then the red light took shape. Slender eyes and twisted-up lips, a face of rage wreathed in red, clawing and cutting at the crystal between them with wrathful abandon. It was Sue, and in that brief second, Moira thought they were so close to each other they might reach out and touch hands. Then the knife in Sue's hand bit true, and the grand crystal artifice splintered, shattered, and blew apart with enough force Moira felt the air being sucked out of her chest. Shards of crystal, the size of heads, hands, and pencil erasers, buffeted Belial's back in the dais beneath him. His massive body blocked the onslaught from touching Moira... And if it hadn't, she'd have been shorn to ribbons in an instant. Belial screamed in confusion and turned to see Sue falling at him head first, her red dress streaming behind her like a comet. He swiped at her, missed, and she sliced down his face with her shaving razor. It split his right eye in two and caught in his cheekbone. Sue hooked on that pivot point and spun her knees into his ribs. Belial stumbled back as Sue dislodged her knife and rolled through his legs, cutting into his crotch as hard as she could. He screamed in turn to Sue, who stood straight, flicked the blood off her knife, and charged him. Belial grew to titanic proportions in just a second, the way a shadow grows when you approach the light. Moira backpedaled on her hands to sit up and watch as Sue spun beneath Belial's massive fist and attacked his legs exposed muscle flexed beneath each shallow cut, and Moira saw Sue was attacking the same places over and over again, digging for the blood vessels. Blyle's remaining eye flicked around in a panic to find the woman and put a stop to this assault, but she spun like a top beneath and around him, her red dress like a tornado of fire. Blyle swung, stumbled, and Sue mounted his shoulders in a flash, jamming the flat of her razor beneath the orb of his good eye. He managed to grab her this time, ripping her off his back. But the inertia transferred into the knife and popped his eyeball free of its socket. Belial's entire body relaxed, pain overloading his brain. Sue spun like a bullet in the air and slid on the broken shards of crystal littering the ground. Then she flicked Belial's blood off the blade and folded it tenderly into the sleeve of her dress. Moira stood and ran to Sue as she adjusted her slender, red hat. Told you I thought you could take a punch, Sue said to Belial in a low, dismissive voice. She spat on the bare stone floor, stumbled, and would have fallen if Moira didn't catch her. Sue was massively out of breath. Moira could see her eyes swimming. Are you okay? She asked Sue. The woman wiped sweat off her face and managed to get her legs back underneath her. She tilted her head toward Moira without looking at her. Are you? She asked. The question remained unanswered as Sue cursed and pushed Moira to the side. The air thickened between them, catching the edge of Sue's dress beside her left leg. The woman drew her knife and sliced the fabric away in two quick slashes throwing herself to the side just as Belial's crystal smashed together where she'd been standing. You little shit, she said, stumbling in his direction. He couldn't rise from his knees and was trying to guide his attacks by holding his severed eyeball in his hand. Moira put her hands to her mouth in disgust as he blinked at Sue by rubbing his thumb over the cornea. More crystals thickened then, but Sue seemed unperturbed. She dipped down, pulled a small work knife from her borrowed riding boots, and threw it at Belial's remaining eye. The throw was wide, but enough to scare Belial into holding the eye against his chest. Sightless, his crystals formed and shattered a few feet behind Sue's head. He opened his fist to aim again, and this time Sue kicked a bootful of shattered crystal off the dais and into his hand. Belial screamed, ground his teeth, and then flickered out of sight. Sue kicked at where he'd been kneeling and a thin sheet of crystal fell away, shattering into a hole beneath the dais. Sue sucked her teeth and looked around for the knife she'd thrown. It was gone. God damn it, she muttered. Sue, Moira called. Ruddy moonlight, nothing compared to the redness inside the ballroom, shone down on them. Belial's palace had gone entirely. The illusion faded to reveal nothing more than a squat, fist-shaped mesa riddled with holes. Ruined bodies lay on the broken floor beneath them, which even as they watched, seemed to boil away like morning dew. They saw maybe a dozen people, sensing the danger had passed, stop playing possum, stand, and run. Amongst their number were maybe half that many children. Where were you? Moira asked. Sue gave her a long look and then seemed to flinch when she remembered something. The woman slapped at her hips for pockets that didn't exist, and then at her bust, finally pulling free a set of three odd playing cards. Sue closed her eyes and seemed to breathe a touch more calmly. Moira rang her hands and tried not to look at the scene around them as Sue put the cards back in her dress without answering. It was Moira's turn to flinch. Shut Shut up! up! She screamed at the voice in her head. I'm... not sure. Sue finally replied. I don't want to talk about it. The woman stumbled again and Moira caught her. Once Belial had gone, the heady, distracting euphoria had also faded. That wasn't to say nothing of it remained... There was a buzz, like the voice, though now it seemed to touch every part of her. Without thinking, she brushed the fingers of her free hand across the base of her stomach. Wondrous night! Delight of the stars! A man's voice said. Both of them looked in his direction, and Moira felt Sue's body tense up when they saw him. It was a slug the size of a draft horse with flesh made of human faces. All of them were dimensional, alive, and constantly changing expressions. Only the main face, sat at the end of a fat stalk atop the body, had eyes. It was an old man's face of East Asian descent. The creature spread its arms to them. Fly well, little bird, he said. Feast and grow mighty! Protect your egg! A screaming, partially digested man clawed his way from a mouth in the thing's side. Without so much as looking, the creature pushed the man back inside itself and gave an apologetic bow, which it maintained until Sue and Moira were gone. What a great story, but I have no fucking idea what's going on in it to you. Maybe it'd be a little easier to understand if I had access to like a, a written version of the show to follow along with and read back through. Maybe even some, I, I don't know, behind the story information to clear up some of my, my fucking questions. Oh, wait, right there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it says right there, join the Westside Fairy Tales Patreon today and get access to behind the story audio programs and fully laid-out chapters of this story, Scars in Time, and most of the Westside Fairy Tales back catalog for just five measly dollars a month. Wow, what a deal. Oh, it even says here you can get special merch packs and signed posters if you give a a, a more generous donation. Uh, that means he you needs your money, people. This isn't a fucking charity. Okay, go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today and subscribe for excellent behind-the-story content and more. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. Link is in the description. And don't forget to watch my show if it's for... Ah, come on! I'm not doing this for free! Now back to our story, already in progress. The must scowled and continued limping toward the front of the train. He'd had to pass up the one pile still connected to the locomotive, ignoring its reverberating hum to put some distance between himself and that fucking pest of an imago. The wounds in his head beat in time with every footstep as a constant reminder of the humiliation that beast had handed him. All things in time, he said, holding a hand over his eye. Healing too much gave him a hangover, exacerbated all the more by the destruction of his searchers in town. His offspring were ignorant, often uselessly stupid, without sharing his sight and receiving constant, direct supervision. They'd been to their most primal desires once that asshole had stabbed him and fed instead of securing the piles, the wood of the sacred Golden Fist. If he hadn't spread himself so thin, split his attentions between the wood and his curiosity for the rider's quarry, then maybe the altercation with that wandering imago wouldn't have gone so poorly. A nagging thought at the heart of him suggested that probably wouldn't have been the case, though. Something about that gato was terribly familiar. It reminded him of sand and the smell of molt in the crawl space beneath the hut where he'd been born. Explosive reverberations rippled the earth beneath his feet and then peppered the air with dust and bits of purplish glass. The must ducked and hid behind one of the train's heavy metal wheels. Clarity followed the explosion, a sudden levity of mind he recognized as the departure of interference from one of his kin. He'd felt a suppressive draw before then, but hadn't even noticed it. Belial was the only creature capable of such influence in this region, though he was sure Belial's domain couldn't be that large. Still, with it gone, he could suddenly smell each pile of wood like a bloody heart left out on the ground for him to gnaw at. Something was wrong, however. There were supposed to be four remaining in total, but he could only sense two the one he'd passed and one ahead of him in storage. Along with those, he felt some other attraction radiating in the front cars of the train, which he chose to ignore. The must recalled what remained of his scattered essence. In the town, the last four or five of his searchers exploded in puffs of dust, leaving a shared meal of ruined bodies to rot uneaten beneath their discarded clothes. His essence tore pieces, small and large, from whatever it touched— Mostly just villagers, now killing each other in a mad frenzy. He watched with ethereal eyes as some broke away and ran for the desert beyond the tracks, only to pass a thin, crystalline partition and burst into flames. Only one person, a girl of perhaps ten years old, stopped to watch her parents and the others burning to ash. Then, flinching, She ran onward past the glittering partition and into the rising sun. The must flowed past the train and followed a rail spar into a cavernous warehouse of clapboard and tin. It passed the smoking remnants of the first pile, not seeing the red eyed creature clinging to the ceiling high overhead, its own hatched egg. It slithered out of sight, making no more sound than the must itself a few scattered fallings of dust. The second egg thrummed and pulsed on its flatbed. What remained of the wood was stretched and warped, transparent to the pulsing indigo light within. The must swirled around it, but the material refused to yield. Defeated, it sighed and collapsed into itself, forming bones and body until the shape of a man was dusting himself off and approaching the last pile. His physical body shuddered as he approached, Electrified by the sheer thrill of even being close to one of the things. Inside it, past the simple facade of reclaimed shipwood, he could see the beast itself, the golden fist. It rose like a dream on a sea of sand, its lifeless rigging draped with its crew, eternally half-dead and screaming. Yes, he whispered to himself, reaching toward the thing forget that he had two of his own still unused back at home, he wanted all of them. Perhaps in using them, he would be strong enough to simply eat creatures like Belial or that confounded Gato, and it would all be worth it. He honestly didn't know what would happen if something like him entered one, but it wouldn't diminish him in any way. Of that, he was certain. A fresh cocoon, he said, repeating what he'd read in the letter Blackwell had written him. A new molting. A new you. He reached toward the pulsing dark of the wood in front of him. What lay inside the simple fibers, what clung to the physical ship passing through the ancient Sargasso, had emerged with his presence. It sensed his intent, his desire. The must's arm snapped away at the elbow and he screamed, stumbling backward and then leaping at the egg, trying to jump inside it if all else failed. An object the size of a door crunched into his ribs and sent him sprawling backward. He rolled until he lay on his back several yards away, looking up at the ceiling and trying in vain to stand. Damn it! You think I didn't smell you before you left your stinking little hole in Tahoe? Belial asked. A void of Yeth stood before him in the flesh. Something the must, generally, try to avoid. Did you think you were going to steal from me? You already have plenty in the first place, you idiot. And now here you are, trying to stick your dirty little fingers in my pie." A thin dart of crystal burrowed through the must's eye and into the ground beneath his head. He screamed. Belial was being a bigger shit than usual, and the must could see why. Somebody had gotten to him worse than that Imago, Gato, had gotten to the must. Blood ran in sheets down the giant's leg and face, coloring the indigo flesh black. Both of Belial's eyes had been cut out of his skull as well, And the must laughed when the giant shifted its fist in his direction and he saw an eyeball peeking at him between the massive knuckles. "'Fuck you, Belial,' he said. Belial snorted and flicked his fingers in the air, creating a sheet of crystal that cut the must in half at the waist. He tried for a weak counterattack, blasting Belial with enough of his essence to scorch anyone else's face off the bone. The hard, noseless shell smoked, smoldered, and held. The must lay his head back against the ground, feeling his consciousness slipping. It had been a shit day. I would kill you and eat you if you weren't so disgusting, Dunbarton, Belial said in a mocking tone. The must rankled at the mention of that name. Lay there and bleed, you fucking worm. Belial turned and limped toward the last cart. The must watched the purple beast push it down a gentle, downhill grade leading into a mineshaft. Belial didn't so much as look back at the must, and then he was gone into the dark. The must lay back and readied himself for the long sleep to come. "'hoping some coyotes or the like would stumble upon this body and let him feed. "'Instead, he heard a wet, cracking noise, "'like a sappy tree being split by a high wind. The second of the pulsing eggs, "'the only one both full and unhatched, "'opened unto the world. "'Black ooze sloshed out and clotted over the platform. "'A naked man followed the liquid.' beaching outside the egg like a whale. Ooh. The must could have chewed through a railroad tie when he saw who it was. Tolliver, he hissed. You fat shit! The man blinked and wiped a great deal of clearish grime off his forehead. His thin hair was matted down to his cheeks, but only on one side. Oh, Mr. Dunbarton. he mumbled. Fancy seeing you here. I was just I Don't you fucking talk to me, the must said, turning his head to watch the last red light of the moon vanish through the holes in the metal roof. He waited for a long time for the fat son of a bitch to get walking, but the man seemed rooted in place. Don't you have a fucking train to catch? Yes, Tolliver said, looking around naked and wide-eyed. I seem to have lost my clothes. And I'm not sure. Are you all right? The must just glared at him through his remaining eye, half a torso laying on its back in an abandoned warehouse. Get the fuck away from me, Tolliver! He hissed. I don't think you realize how... Get the fuck away from me, Tolliver! The must shouted and, thank God, The greasy pig jumped and started motoring away at full speed. Shortly after, the must felt the vibration of Tolliver's train rolling off into the desert. Perhaps half an hour later, the rider approached on a new horse, ending his long, low whistling with a chuckle. The must had barely begun to regrow his leg bones. Don't start with me, was all he said. You want me to leave <laughs> so you can sulk in private? The faceless cowboy asked. Do as you please, the must said in a flat voice. I intend to rest for a while. <laughs> I suppose you do, the rider said. Hitching his horse and dragging a dead man up beside the must. He started fiddling with the wooden remnants of the piles and found a few decent sticks. Setting about to make himself a fire. You find what you were looking for? The must asked. Yep. Yeah, but I didn't get it. The rider said. You? Same. The must replied with an exhausted whisper. He closed his eyes and let the rising sun fall across his face. The long night had finally ended, though more were sure to follow.
1: retreats beneath the earth to heal to plan and to grow next time on sin carriers the grand ball arc ends as our heroes regroup and recuperate aboard the train but even free of belial's machination the danger has subsided very little sue wakes up the morning after the events of the ball tired but none the worse for wear her debt paid to moira she leaves not knowing somebody else aboard the train is waiting to collect Mr. Vaught takes stock of the increasing damage to the train and tells the security crew to be ready to stop again shortly. Tolliver awakes to a different man than the one he was before departing, but can't quite hold himself together. Wickless misjudges the situation terribly and loses faith, and Gatto teaches a new Imago just where they stand in the pecking order. Just what happened to Tolliver in that egg? Can the crew? simply continue on despite the horrors they survived? And do they even have a choice? Did Sue stop Belial before he could truly interfere with Moira? Or was she too late? Or was Belial too late as well? You may find the answers to these questions and more on the final installment of the Grand Ball Arc, episode 12 of Sin Carriers, Morning. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there.
0: The Westside Fairy Tales is written, read, and produced by Tyler Bell. Sound design, original music, and foley by WSF Productions LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright WSF Productions, twenty twenty three.